You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. My name is Wesley. Welcome to King's Church, one of the pastors here. And today I get the privilege of kicking us off into a new sermon series in the book of Exodus. Now, perhaps you may not be familiar with Exodus, or it may be uh, a book that you haven't read or experienced a lot. And so today, as we introduce this new book, we want to kind of give a brief introduction to our study. We're going to spend the next 14 weeks uh, very uh, ambitiously covering 40 chapters of Exodus, uh, which is a lot, but we're going to power through it and uh, we're going to learn a great deal about this book. Now the word Exodus that the book is named for refers to an event. It literally means departure or the going out. It refers to an event that takes place in the first half of this book that we'll come to know pretty famously as Israel's departure, their Exodus, their deliverance from Egypt. Now, I find it ironic that this spring we will be going into Egypt as we uh, focus on Israel's departure from Egypt as a church. Now, there have been many attempts throughout pop culture to try to capture this incredible book, and they have all failed miserably. Uh, The first one is probably the newest, which is Exodus, Gods, and Kings. Anybody see this movie? by chance? All right, I didn't see it, so you can give me a review later. Uh, There's a picture of it. Uh, Exodus, Gods and Kings, starring Christian Bell as this gladiator-type Moses figure. Uh, (laughs) Don't know how accurate it was, but he probably should just stick to being the Dark Knight in the future. Uh, Christian Bell stars in this movie that they try to capture the epic tale of the Exodus. The next is The Prince of Egypt, which came out in the late 90s. There we go. A DreamWorks film. That uh, regardless of how, uh, <laughs> yeah, just brought you back to childhood. Uh, regardless of, of how accurate this might be, I will say you cannot beat the music in this movie. I mean, how do you get more epic than Hans Zimmer and Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston singing When You Believe? I mean, you know, we can just, we can just worship through that today. And then finally, we have The Ten Commandments, which is the oldest and perhaps the most famous Charlton Heston classic film. Uh, that details the Exodus narrative. Now, the problem is that none of these works were able to capture the beauty and power of this book. Because as much as Exodus seems like it, it's not just an epic tale. It's not just some incredible miracles that we get to read about. And it's not just a good moral code, the Ten Commandments, to live by. The book of Exodus primarily teaches us who God is. It's a book about the God of our salvation, the God whom we worship. And as we go through the book of Exodus, you might be able to just summarize the main idea of the entire book into these two points, that God delivers and he dwells with his people. He delivers and he dwells with his people. In the first 18 chapters of the book, we're going to see that God delivers his people. And then chapters 19 through 40, we're going to see how God dwells with his people people. And today, as we come into this book in Exodus chapter 1 and 2, we're going to focus primarily on that first half of the book and the introduction to that, which is simply this, that God's promise and plan is to deliver his people. 
You see, the reason why we want to study the book of Exodus is because the book of Exodus is the story of us. The story of Israel is the story of us. As God's people, just as God provided a deliverance from Egypt, God in Christ has provided a deliverance from our Exodus, from our Egypt, from our sin and darkness. And just as God draws them into his presence on Mount Sinai, God draws us into his presence, into relationship with him. And so as we go through this study through the book of Exodus, I pray that it would teach us more of who God is, his character, that he's the God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that we would see that not only will we learn to worship him and to see him for who he is, but we learn about his mission in this world. That God uses his people primarily to go and proclaim his good news of salvation. And to fight against the injustice in this world. And so today as we go into chapter 1 and 2, we're going to focus on God's promise and plan to deliver his people. And here's our outline today. We're first going to see the setting of the stage as we enter into this new book together in the first 12 verses, which were just read for us. And then we're going to see the plan unfolding. This promised plan of God to deliver his people will begin to unfold in these first few chapters. And so let's go ahead and dive into the text. Verse 1, the setting of the stage. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. It's important to note, there were 70 persons when they came to the land of Egypt. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now, as we kind of just jump into this, we're finding ourselves just kind of jumping into the middle of a narrative. It feels like we're just coming into the middle of a story. That's because we are. Uh, Exodus is one of the first five books of the Bible that we typically refer to that as the Pentateuch. And you may not ever use that word again, and that's fine. It literally just means book of five. In other words, what it's telling us is that the first five books of the Bible are telling one singular story. There's one story of God's redemption of his people, of God's plan and promise to use his people that's being told through these first five books of the Bible. And so we can't just kind of ease into this and pull it out of context. We've got to have to find ourselves, where are we in this story? It's kind of like Star Wars. Anybody Star Wars fans in here? Okay, so Star Wars is kind of confusing, right? Because from 2015 to 2019, the last three episodes came out. But then, but then episode four came out in 1977, And then episode one came out in 1999. So if you are a nerd and you love to nerd out on these things and you go and talk to your novice Star Wars friends, they can get really confused when all they care about is, oh, this is a new film with action. It looks great. And they're asking, like, where's Luke's father? Like, who's this other dude with the mask? It looks like Darth Vader. Like, why is this guy named Jar Jar Binks? Why is he even there? Like, why why was he even created? Like, someone's regretting that massively right now. And you just kind of enter in the story and you're not, where, where are we in this narrative, right? But one thing Star Wars does really well for us is that when we watch those films, we have those creeping uh, like pre-credits uh, to the movie, right? And it's showing us, it's kind of entering us into the context of the narrative. Where here, we're seeing the, cre- the crawling text of God's plan. We're entering into the narrative of God's people. And we're reminded that there's this family of Joseph 
and of Jacob. They've come to Egypt to escape famine. But we're told here that as they come into Egypt, they flourish, they multiply, they grow very numerous. That's a deliberate echo to the Garden of Eden. When God tells the first humans to be fruitful and to multiply, what happens in the garden? They rebel against God's blessing, against his good plan. And so God sets in motion this plan through the family of Abraham to be the vehicle to restore God's blessing to this world. And we pick that up in Genesis 15, just a little context here. In Genesis 15, God is speaking to Abraham and he tells him, he says, hey, go outside and look up. He says, look toward heaven and number the stars. And if you're able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then you get down to verse 13. And at night he comes back to Abram and the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. What is God doing here? He's setting the stage for us. He's reminding us that this promise and this plan was given generations before to Abraham, that God would multiply his people. And that if Abraham looked up to the stars and tried to count them, so would his offspring be. But there would be a day where they would sojourn in a land that is not theirs. And we now enter in that story where they are sojourning in this land that is not there, but they're still growing and increasing in number. And then we pick up in verse eight. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. So here a new Pharaoh, a new king comes into town and he doesn't know Joseph. He doesn't know the the blessing that is God's people. He actually thinks that blessing is a threat to him. It's a threat to his power. This, this immigrant community, this, these immigrants uh, uh, from Israel who've come and sojourned in this land are a threat to his power and they're growing in strength. And so what does he do? He says, no, I'm going to treat them brutally. I'm going to take what should be God's blessing and enslave them. And this echoes again the beginning of the book of Genesis when humanity rebels against God's blessing. And instead of seeing God's people as a source of blessing, they are forced into labor. Now we get to this point in the narrative and things seem very, very, very bleak for the people of God. They've come because of a famine to this land. They've increased and now they're forced into slavery. And in this moment, God's plan of redemption begins to unfold. And the first thing we see of God's unfolding plan is that God's plan to deliver is a plan to deliver us from slavery. It's a plan to deliver us from slavery. Let's pick up again in verse 13. So as this large, growing, powerful group of people are moving in, the the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is threatened, and he says this, 
So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. In mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And so the the solution that this king, this Pharaoh comes up with is, I'm going to turn the Hebrews into slaves. They're going to be socially oppressed. They're going to be considered second-class citizens. They're going to be economically oppressed. They're going to do hard labor. They're not going to get paid for it. They're going to be physically oppressed. We're going to deal shrewdly with them, ruthlessly with them. And not to, to any way belittle or downplay the reality of the hardship of the Hebrews, but there's another oppression that's happening here. There's another form of slavery that is being brought upon the people of Israel. And that is that they're going to be spiritually enslaved. You see, it's kind of hard to to tell in in verse 14, but the word that is translated every time as work actually means serving a master. Now, it would read really weird in the English if we actually used that literal translation, because it would say that they did all this hard service and all kinds of serving a master in the field and all kinds of serving a master. They ruthlessly made them serve as masters, as slaves, right? It it would read kind of, uh, it kind of read kind of bulky. And so we translate it as hard labor or as work, but in reality, it's actually more so serving someone else, serving something else. And what this is doing is introducing us to a theme that will run throughout the book of Exodus. And that is simply this, that if we serve anything or anyone but God, we too are slaves. If we serve anything or anyone but God, we too are enslaved. And what follows that is destructiveness, is bitterness, the book of Exodus will remind us time and time again that ultimate freedom comes from knowing and serving God alone. Serving anything else puts us in slavery. And we see this most clearly perhaps in the coming weeks when Moses goes to Pharaoh and he will tell Pharaoh, let my people go. But no, he actually doesn't say that. You see, we hear that all the time in the song, oh baby, let my people go, right? And we, we, we hear that, song, that, that line, let my people go all the time. That's actually not what God commands Moses to say. Nine or 10 times Moses, and we'll, we'll hear more about this later, will go to Pharaoh and he will say, let my people go so that they may serve me. Let my people go so that they may go into the desert to worship You see, ultimate liberation, ultimate freedom comes when we find our enjoyment and our worship in God and God alone. The deliverance that God's people needed was not just out of physical bondage. The deliverance God's people needed was to go and to worship God, to experience the beauty and the majesty of their God. And so in Exodus, God's salvation means freedom. It's liberation. Now, we hear that word freedom, I think sometimes we think in more of a modern sense of what freedom looks like, and perhaps we would define freedom as not having any master at all. That freedom means we don't have any Lord at all. That freedom means we can choose to do what we want to do and live our lives as the way we see fit. But as we walk through the book of Exodus, we're going to see that that definition is going to be subverted because that doesn't hold true on a personal or spiritual level. That the only way we can ever experience ultimate freedom is with God, not without. Because the reality is we're all serving something. There's something that all of us look to for significance in life. And we say, if we have that, we have significance. If we have that, we have security. 
It could be a more religious thing, right? If I'm devout, if I live my life to a certain standard, then I have security, I have significance. It could be a more secular thing. If I obtain a certain financial status or my family or my achievements, Regardless, we have something that we need to make us happy in life, that brings significance and security. And the thing that we need for happiness and security in our lives are the things that our hearts are serving. They're the things that our hearts are chained to. They're things that our hearts need. The reality is we're not living free in this world. And we're happy when those things are going well in life, right? We're happy when those things are achieving what we desire them to achieve. But what if circumstances come and they threaten those things? And we find ourselves in the same place as the people of Israel, in anger, despair, bitterness, anxious, fearful. And the one thing that can draw us out of that is God and God alone. It's when God's love becomes the ultimate source of our security. It's when God's delight in us becomes the ultimate source of our significance. That's when we are free. That's when we experience the freedom we have in Christ. Now you might say, okay, well, that means I'm just going to go and I'm going to serve God. I'm going to do good things and and I'm going to devote myself to him. But the reality is our salvation, our freedom from slavery is never on our service. It's never on what we can bring to the table. It's on the one who has served on our behalf. As Philippians tells us, Jesus, who being the very nature of God, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and humbled himself and became obedient even unto death on the cross. It's not what we have done, but it is what Christ has done for us that we are free. We come to the Father and we say, Father, it will never be enough for what we can do. The quality of our service will never be enough we place ourselves upon what Jesus Christ has done us, and in that we find true freedom. The one who says, thy will be done, and went to the cross for us. That's who we trust in to free us from our bondage, from our slavery. But not only does this, uh, this, this theme of spiritual slavery pop up as God's plan is unfolding, but we also see that God's plan of deliverance often begins by him working behind the scenes. As he unfolds his plan, it often happens by him working behind the scenes. You know, something that's very unique about these first two chapters of Exodus is that God's name is rarely mentioned. It's actually mentioned two times in, in, in the passage that we're studying this morning. And as things continue to get worse and worse and worse for Israel, it seems as if God's hardly there. Pick up in verse 15. If it's not enough that this king of Egypt has enslaved his people, in verse 15 it says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. And if that's not enough that he comes to the Hebrew midwives and kind of in secret, he says, hey, we need to kill all the male infants. He then makes it a national decree of genocide. He says, Pharaoh in verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. 
And if that's not enough to see how things are just getting bad, God does rescue and save through his providential care, Moses. And Moses grows up in Pharaoh's household. And then we pick up in verse 11, and it says, One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when Moses thinks that he got away with this and no one saw, word quickly spreads of what he has done. And verse 15 says, and when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. You see in this passage from Pharaoh's enslavement of Israel to him commanding the midwives to decreeing genocide of all the Hebrew male infants to Moses himself killing a man and fleeing. Things continue to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And it seems as if God is absent. It seems as if he's not there. He's not even mentioned. Now, why might this be? Well, I think the first thing it does is it speaks directly to our hearts. Because our natural disposition to when things get bad in life is to think that God is just not there. It's our natural response. When things are getting worse, we say, where is he? He seems to be absent. And surely that's what the, the, the Israelites thought as the Egyptian troops start rolling into these Hebrew towns and start putting people in chains and taking them away and beating those who stand up against us. They probably, they probably shout out, God, where are you? Where is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And when things get worse in our lives, what's the first thing we want to say? God, where were you when this happened? It's our natural response. Say, God, where are you? You seem absent. But I think this is also here to teach us that we can't trust in the faulty logic that just because we can't see him there doesn't mean he's uninvolved. Doesn't mean he's remote or uncaring or incapable Because what we see amazingly in these first two chapters is that every bad thing actually turns out for good, right? Every single bad thing we just listed actually turns out for good. Everything Pharaoh does doesn't just backfire on him generically. It backfires on him because it completes the exact opposite of what he intended it to complete every time. He tells the midwives, hey, in secret, go kill these infants. And what does it do? It creates an act of bravery and greater unity amongst the people. He says, hey, I'm going to make this decree to kill all infants. And what happens is that Moses is not only saved through that decree, but Moses actually grows up in his own household and is trained and equipped with the best education in the land to then become the deliverer of God's people. And because of that decree to kill all infants, Moses gets to spend the early years of his life with his own mother, nursing him and caring for him. And even when Moses grows up, And he does something incredibly unwise. And it seems like he has squandered his ability to be a leader. He is led into the desert to have an incredible encounter with God. Every single moment where something bad happens in these first two chapters, it actually turns out for good. The seeds of oppression that that Pharaoh is sowing will actually turn out for greater deliverance for the people of God. And look, this happens over many, many years. And so when we look out from our standpoint of history, we can say, well, we see what God's doing, right? But this happens over a lifetime. 
And oftentimes in our own lifetime, it's hard for us when we're in the middle of it to see what is actually happening. And in fact, there are times in our lives where we will never see the full result of why things happen to us or others around us. But again, this passage reminds us, just because we can't see the immediate good doesn't mean God is hidden. In fact, when we find that he feels like he's most hidden, he's not. When it feels like he's most absent, he's not. And if you're having trouble today finding God, don't worry. Don't freak out. Because the Bible reminds us time and time again, not only does he not want us to suffer, but that behind the suffering and the evil of this world, he is bringing about good and justice. And in those moments when we feel like it's hard to find God, we can trust in the promise of Scripture that reminds us that we wouldn't be seeking God if he was not first seeking us. That he is with us. That he is working for our good. And when bad things happen, we don't just have to have that abstract mindset of, well, you know what, I'm sure there's some good in this. I'm sure I can trust God. Because we have something more sure than that. As Christians, we have a foundation when things are happening around us and we feel like we can't see God in it, we look to Jesus. We look to Christ on the cross. Because on the cross, we see the very, very worst possible thing collide with the very, very best outcome. We see the moment when it feels like God is the most absent. When Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Actually turn out to be the ultimate way God works in this world. It is in the cross that we are able to see that in our suffering, in the bad things of this world, Jesus is with us. And that he is working. And that he is not distant. He is not absent from all that. Now, the third thing I think we see here is that not only is God's plan unfolding, teaching us that that he is here to deliver us from slavery, not only is he teaching us that his deliverance oftentimes happens when he's working behind the scenes and we can't even fully see it, but finally God's deliverance, this plan of his deliverance happens through weak and powerless. His plan is unfolding through the weak and powerless. Again, we see a constant theme in the book of Exodus that God doesn't primarily work through insiders, but he works through outsiders. That he doesn't primarily work through the powerful, but the weak. That he'll work through failures in a way, not through achievement. Notice who the heroes are of this story in Exodus chapter 1 and 2. It's not the most successful person. That would be Pharaoh himself. He's wicked. He's a tyrant. It's not Moses who grew up in Pharaoh's household and had a lot of advantages in life. He's unwise and he actually flees the scene. The heroes in this story in these first two chapters are women. We first are introduced to the two midwives, Shipra and Puah. They're given names, which is incredibly significant. It says that these midwives were commanded by Pharaoh to slaughter the male infants on the birth stool. But in verse 17, how do the midwives react? But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them and let the male children live. In verse 20, it says, so God dwelt well, dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. 
Now, historians would tell us that midwives were typically women who didn't have children of their own. And that's significant because in Egyptian culture, if a woman didn't have children, she would be at best considered useless and at worst cursed by the gods. And here these midwife, midwives women were being told that God blesses them with children, which probably meant that they didn't have children beforehand. They are the lowest of lows in society. They were lower than men. They were lower than most women in society. And yet God uses them. And God rescues his people through these women who had the lowest status you could possibly have. But these nobodies to the Egyptian culture are the ones who stood up courageously and obeyed God rather than men. In an act of creative civil disobedience in the face of wickedness and tyranny, they stood up for what was right. They are the heroes. God used the lowest of the lowest, the social outsiders, to deliver his people. And then we get to chapter 2. And we see Moses' mother, who in another wonderful creative act of civil disobedience, in a way, delivers Moses. Look again in verse 3. It says, When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed uh, dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Now the daughter, verse 5, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. So Moses' mother is commanded to throw her infant son in the river. And she does it, but not like Pharaoh wanted it to happen. She puts him in a basket floating to the place where the Egyptian women would bathe. And Pharaoh's own daughter is there, a Gentile, someone outside of the people of God, has compassion. In an act of bravery, she brings this little boy into her arms and delivers him. And that little boy would grow up to be the one who would deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt. It's through the act of compassion and bravery of these women that God once again rescues his people. Now, why is this important for us today? What's important for us, because if there's anyone in this room today that feels like their life is of nothing, if there's anyone in this room that has been told that they have not lived up to the standard that they should, if there's any one of us in this room that feels like we are a nobody, God delights in using you. He delights in using his people. No matter who you are, no matter your status in life, he delights in using you. It's interesting, and it is by no accident that the king of Egypt is never given a name here. This is interesting. The most powerful person in the world is not named in this chapter. And historians and commentators have debated for years which Pharaoh this is, but he's never given a name but these two midwives who were nothing to Pharaoh are given names, and their names are recorded. And throughout history, throughout the end of time, we will know about their act of bravery. Even though they were no bias to most people, it's a reminder that through God's grace, he can use any one of us. And he delights in using us, even when we feel like we are not worthy of being used. Isn't that incredible? God would use us. That he would use us in his plan. Now, I think this also reminds us that if we want to pattern our heart after God's heart, 
that we need to learn to love and to care for people who can give us nothing in return. That when we experience the grace of God, we, those who have experienced that, should have the same concern that God has for people. No matter who they are, no matter what they bring to the table, as Christians, we're reminded to work for the good of others, to seek to serve others, to help others, to seek to do justice and show compassion to people just like the midwives. But you know what? Caring for others is great. Fighting for justice is a hallmark of the Christian faith. But the reason why we can see our part in God's deliverance, the reason why we can see how he works through the weak and powerless is other than looking to Jesus Christ himself. Because God loves the weak and powerless because our salvation is accomplished by Jesus who let go of his power, who sacrificed himself, who died on the cross for our behalf. You see, the salvation we find in Jesus Christ when it is brought into our life, it is not brought into our life because we say, we're strong, Lord, take me in. It's when we say, we're weak, Lord, and we need you. It comes into our life when we realize that we are a mess, <laughs> when we're a failure, when we are weak, when we are powerless, when we bring nothing to the table, and we look to Jesus and all that he has done for us. And when that happens, then we realize God's compassion and his love for others. That's the freedom we have to serve and to care for those who are powerless and weak in this world. And so as we come to the Lord's Supper today, I just say welcome to Exodus. This is going to be a great book to study. It's our story of how God is redeeming us. And as we come to the Lord's Supper today, we are reminded from this text that in Jesus Christ, we can find freedom today from anything that holds us captive. And that is in Jesus Christ today that we can trust him. No matter how bad things may seem right now, that his plan is good and that he is working even when we can't fully see it. Today in Jesus Christ, we can join in his work in this world. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.